From the Gospel according to St. John. Now, among those who went up to the worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. And the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, The light is with you a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may be become the children of light. After Jesus had said this, he departed and hid from them. And although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. This was to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. <clears throat> we watch them hang the medal around the neck as the national anthem is played. You see the bumper sticker on the back of the minivan. I'm the proud parent of an honor roll student. I mean, we notice things like $1,000 suits and Italian loafers, well-cut clothes, 
We like championships, winners. We will brook no opposition in our devotion to champions. It's, I mean, it's always about whether you win, right? I mean, we like 4.0s and MDs and PhDs and, I mean, people at the top. Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. Son, I don't care what you do as long as you're successful. Nose to the grindstone. Early bird gets the worm and all that. Does that sound familiar to you? Right, I, I remember when I was in the, in, the, in the third grade, and there were three reading groups. There were the, uh, the blue birds, the red birds, and like the black buzzards or something. And everybody knew which reading group the smart kids were supposed to be in. I mean, eight years old, nobody said, all the smart kids, come over here, read the smart kid books, and all the other kids, you come over here and read these easy monosyllabic books. I mean, nobody said that, but we knew. I mean, eight, year old, eight years old is old enough to know that being number one is what we all ought to care about, right? I mean, you don't have to go to Harvard to know that that's where glory's at. Eight years old is old enough to know that nobody aspires to be a black buzzard. We know, don't we? I mean, I don't know when it happens, but at what point in your life you, you cross that line, the, the line between acceptance of your general circumstances and the one that promises greater glory bestowed by the world. I mean, when do we stop being satisfied with what we have? And, and start to dream about the spotlight. I mean, Webster says that glory is a great honor and admiration won by doing something important or valuable. Of course, what Webster doesn't ever bother to spell out for us is what might be important or valuable. <laughs> but we're pretty sure from early on that being, you know, in the, in the low reading group isn't part of it. It's not either important or valuable. But I mean, we don't need a dictionary to define what everybody's supposed to want. I mean, we know what glory looks like, don't we? Soren Kierkegaard, in his book, Either Or, he makes a contrast between two kinds of lives, the ethical and the aesthetic. Each life, he says, sees certain things as important. The esthete is someone who believes that pleasure is to be desired above all and that pain is to be avoided, that boredom is one of life's greatest evils, that existence is essentially episodic, that virtuosity is preferable to continuity in one's life, that, that fantasy is more important than reality, that the accidental features of one's life, such as beauty or intelligence or wealth, are crucial to the aesthete, this way of life is glorious. See, the aesthetic life is one where a person's engagement with the world is always through the prism of one's own self as an individual. In a land of microwave dinners and downloadable movies, late-night drive-through, iPhones, and Tucker Carlson, we can understand that, right? Glory is about satisfying our deepest desires on our own terms. I've lived a life that's full. 
I've traveled each and every byway, but more. What's more than this? I did it my way. I mean, eight years old is plenty old enough to know what this world considers glorious. The Bible talks about glory. Matter of fact, the Bible has some really strong ideas about glory. The interesting thing is that none of them have to do with sinking a 25-foot putt at the Masters or, or, or closing a multi-million dollar business deal. I mean, if that's our idea of true glory, well, the Bible's probably got a bone to pick with us. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the word for glory is kavod. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures, and in the New Testament, they both translate that word kavod as doxa in Greek, from which we get the word doxology. Right? When we meet in person, we sing it every Sunday. It's an expression of praise, in this case to God, who deserves the glory. But at the root of the word kavod is the signification that has to do with heaviness, with, with weight. You see, it was thought that a person who had won great honor and admiration by doing something important or valuable would be a, a person of great substance, of unassailable character. Why? Well, because the weight of glory was so enormous that it could only be carried by someone of substance. Now, some of that thinking carries over into our language today. And we still talk about somebody being a lightweight, right, or having a flimsy character. Someone like that cannot, according to Scripture, achieve true glory. Well, let's take a look at our text for this morning. Now, in it, Jesus has just made the triumphal entry, palm branches and hosannas and all that stuff, stuff that we will Remember, and we will celebrate next weekend on Palm Sunday slash Passion Sunday. The people are prepared to vote him into office. I mean, right then and there. It's a big deal. They're convinced that if anybody's going to be successful at throwing off the bonds of Roman oppression, Jesus is the guy. I mean, they want a real candidate, right? Not a, not a human etch-a-sketch, somebody that you can reset Every time a different policy position is politically advantageous. Somebody who's substantial, strong character, firm convictions. And Jesus, I mean, his resume is impeccable, isn't it? He stands up for what he believes in. Doesn't take the easy way out. He speaks up on behalf of the, the poor, the low wealth, the forgotten, the disadvantaged, the sick. All of that. I mean, he's already raised Lazarus from the dead for crying out loud. What else do we need to what do we need what else do we need to know? I mean, he obviously deserves glory. Some Greeks, which is to say uh, Gentiles, but they've heard all the superlatives about Jesus and they want to catch a glimpse of this latest member of who's wired list. And they come up to Philip and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, of course, considering the circumstances, that feels sort of like 
Frank and Irma going to Hollywood, walking up to a big studio lot and saying to the security guard, sir, we, we would like to see Denzel Washington. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't, right? Get in line. Philip and Andrew go to tell Jesus about the new additions to his fan club, and I mean, they're excited, of course. The, the movement is, is building, and it's got some momentum on their side. But what does Jesus say? He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. <laughs> Doggone right, the hour's come. I mean, as he's at the height of his popularity, and finally, Jesus is going to take what's rightfully his. He's popular, he's successful. I mean, they want to crown him king for Pete's sake. Now, up to this point, everything is going along as it should. I mean, we can understand the storyline. Small town boy comes to the big city, makes good. We know that. We know that plot. But it is then, of course, that Jesus, as is his custom, takes a left turn on us and starts heading in the opposite direction of where we think he ought to go. Flying in the face of conventional wisdom, Jesus offers an entirely new, entirely absurd spin on true glory. He says, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. Whoever serves me God will honor. Wait a minute. Dead wheat? Uh, losing life being servants? I mean, that's not going to work. That's not going to work at all. There's absolutely nothing glorious about any of that. I mean, you keep up that nonsense and, 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 and you'll be on all the who's tired lists quicker than you can say Justin Bieber. No, Jesus, I mean, you're going to have to do better than that. Come on. Because, I mean, we know, right? Those weighted with this world's glory make the cover of time. They cut down the nets. They do the home run trot. They hold up their index finger and shout, we're number one. They network. They close deals. They have the ears of the powerful. I don't have to worry about being pulled over and shot by the police. People who live with glory in this world don't live in the constant fear that the next door on the knock on the door is going to be ice waiting to take Poppy or Mommy away. They don't get cold sweats every time the first of the month rolls around, keeping one eye peeled for the landlord and the other one for the sheriff. I mean, they don't have to worry because they work at jobs that easily shift back and forth between working at the office and working at home. Those who bear glory in this society don't abide in terror that their boss will find out who they love or whether the gender on their birth certificate matches the one they claim now. I, I, I've been raised in this society. I've been socialized in the art of recognizing what glory looks like. Now you can tell an awful lot by a culture by watching on whom it bestows glory. Who is it that gets 
the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Congressional Medal of Honor. You can learn a lot about a culture, about its leaders, by whom they glorify. A teacher who lives a lifetime in a small rural school, the single mother who works three jobs to make ends meet, the father who foregoes dreams of career success because he puts his father's responsibilities before his work, we don't sing any doxologies to them. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus has turned our world on its head. And there's no room in the economy of God for self-promoters and glory hounds. And it's easy to think that it's all about me, about being all I can be, all about being self-actualized. So when I come looking for Jesus, what I see still surprises me. In Christ, the powers and principalities behold God's countering of this world's glory with glory of God's own. Because God doesn't always see glory in the things that we value, in the people we hold up as winners. I mean, we worship at the foot of a big gold cross, but Jesus stumbled under a cross of wood. We put weighty crowns of gold on those whom we exalt, but his crown course was light. Thorns don't weigh very much. We work and study and strive so that we might be weighty enough so as never to be required to stoop to anyone. And Jesus showed us glory with a basin and a towel. We wanted to hail him on Palm Sunday as king. By week's end, he knelt down and he washed our tired feet. In the novel Silence by Shusaku Endo, it's a story about the Jesuits coming to Japan in the 16th century, and that gave rise to a mass conversion to the Christian faith. But there arose resentment of the Christians among those in power, and a backlash almost inevitably ensued. It was a horrible persecution of the uh, Japanese Christians. In this story, Rodriguez is a Jesuit priest, and he's gone to Japan as a missionary. Now, of course, Rodriguez is a devout man. He spends a lot of time in prayer, contemplation. But his devotional life is obsessed with a terrible problem. And that is, despite his earnest prayer and the contemplation he hears, Nothing from God. The ragtag group of Japanese Christians to whom Rodriguez has grown so attached, I mean, they continue to be persecuted and killed because of their faith. I mean, it's, it's as if Christ has turned away from those struggling to follow. And Rodriguez cannot get past the horrible silence of God. He cries out and he hears nothing in return. And neither do the people who are suffering. And this realization becomes almost unendurable for him. Soon, Rodriguez gets himself captured by the authorities. He's put in a small, dark prison cell. And while he's there, he thinks he hears snoring from somebody nearby. And, and he supposes that it's maybe one of the drunken guards or something. But then he's told that it's not the snoring of drunken guards, but the labored, awful breathing of some former Japanese Christians who have, after torture, apostatized. 
forsaking their faith, but have nevertheless been hung upside down with tiny incisions around their eyes for the blood to drip out slowly into the excrement at the bottom of the pit, causing a slow and agonizing death. Rodriguez, of course, is horrified at the thought of their plight, especially since they've renounced their faith. And so his captors tell him that the people are being punished because Rodriguez won't renounce his faith. I mean, all he has to do is put his little toe on a picture of Christ. And they tell him, you know, it's just a bureaucratic formality. But how can he turn his back on his faith, which is really what they're asking him to do? On the other hand, how can he stand idly by while people suffer because of his faith? Just trample the image, his captors tell him, and they will be set free. Rodriguez wants to take the picture, which has been marked by a thousand toes that have trampled on it. He wants to take it and kiss it. He raises his foot, and in it he feels this dull, heavy pain. This is no mere formality to him because he's about to be tempted to trample a symbol of all that his life has stood for up to this point. His anguish overwhelms him. How, how can God continue to be silent in the face of all this? And then Christ in bronze breaks the silence. And it speaks to this tormented priest and it says, trample, trample. I more than anyone know the pain in your foot. I came to be trampled on. Trample. It was to share your pain that I carried my own cross. Put your foot down and trample on me. We beheld his glory, a glory that required us to redefine just what glory looks like. See, Jesus' glory is in stooping down. He became a grain of wheat cast to the earth, trampled on, buried under the sod. Jesus' glory, is exaltation, was when he finally got his opportunity to be lifted high. And didn't he say, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people unto myself? But his lifting up from the earth, the only time when he was high enough to look down upon us from the heights of glory was when he looked down at us from the cross. I mean, refusing to live by the rules of this world sense of what glory looks like can get you killed. But just ask Jesus. So, I mean, I get it. This is definitely not what we bargained for. But according to the way Jesus lived his life and died because of it, it's just the kind of deal a world built on injustice needs. It is the kind of glory that people are dying to see. Amen.
Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.